Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Trey Stevens, the co-founder and executive chairman of Andrel Industries, an innovative company founded in, in 2017 to help quickly develop and field technologies DoD will need in a more contested and fast-moving future. He is a Palantir veteran and is a partner at the Founders Fund. That includes his old boss, Peter Thiel. He also is the author of the thought-provoking piece that ran on June 6 on War on the Rocks, Rebooting the Arsenal of Democracy. Trey, thanks very much for joining us. It's a real honor and pleasure having you on the program. Much appreciated, Vago. Nice to be here. Great to have you on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. Um, Trey, for decades, the Pentagon has called on industry to develop technologies to accelerate uh, its technological future. But the number of success stories are actually relatively few. If you look at it from a hardware intensive standpoint, it's, it's SpaceX. Uh, Palantir was successful, even though they've had a little bit uh, of a setback uh, recently. Uh, and there are those who've been consistently arguing, hey, we have to fundamentally change our uh, uh, approach. And even some big defense contractors got into it. Textron stands out as an example with the Scorpion aircraft, where DOD asked, hey, bring us bring us new technologies, put your own skin in the game. Guys did and gals did, and it didn't necessarily uh, move uh, the needle. You guys are actually trying to do that right now. You got Palmer Lucky on the team, Chris Bros, uh, and others, and have, have scored a series of key wins, uh, whether it's on border security or special operations and even the Air Force's air, uh, air battle management system. You guys are trying to create something completely new, completely different in its approach and how it solves these problems. What makes and sets Andrel apart from all of its competitors? Yeah, you know, I think that there's this kind of weird belief that exists in this market space that there, it's sort of like a field of dreams. If you just build a technology that is clearly better than the alternative, that the customer will come. And I, I think this is kind of hearkening back to the, the intro comments there that you made, which is that other people have tried to do uh, all sorts of stuff. The results have been less than inspiring. And I think genuinely that's just because technology isn't the core of the decision-making process for the Department of Defense. There's all sorts of other uh, you know, incentive structures that are in place that people are responding to. Um, and ultimately, if you want to build a company that's doing work with the government, you actually have to know how to sell to them. You have to know how to respond to that incentive structure. And so it's really incredibly hard for um, you know, business people who have operated exclusively in other industries or academics or scientists um, to break into that um, because it's, it's incredibly challenging, complex. And this is something that we brought to, to bear very early on in the Anderl story was just an understanding of how to do that. Um, and that, that gave us a, a tremendous advantage in getting those early contracts. The biggest criticism at the Pentagon is uh, right, uh, the barrier century, the valley of death problem. And I know you guys have been somewhat methodical, great hire in Chris Bros, uh, somebody who intimately knows the process uh, and, and how it works. Um, but, but fundamentally, the Pentagon also needs to change how it does business, uh, right? Uh, and, and you wrote in your uh, article, uh, rebooting the article of Demo uh, Arsenal of Democracy, that we need to have actually a different approach. What's the different and more innovative approach we need on the part of the customer 
that, you know, because of Congress's interaction, right, will not let go of an older generation of technology in order to free the resources you need to develop the new generation of technology. How, how is it we need to think about this problem and think about it differently? There, there are a lot of very, you know, nuanced and detailed policy critiques that you can make for ways that we could change the incentive structure that, you know, as a result of McNamara era reforms uh, during the Cold War or, you know, the reforms that Bill Perry put in place uh, in the early 90s as a response to the ending of the Cold War. Um, and, you know, we could spend hours and hours and hours on a podcast talking about all those incredibly specific things that would force uh, a, a culture change within the department. Um, you know, one of the things that just doesn't get talked about very much in the DC circles is that there are some non-policy ways to grapple with this as well. Um, obviously, when you're a, a policy person, uh, it gets really easy to see every nail uh, as requiring a policy hammer. And that's probably like, a, you know, an overly simplified version of the problem. In many cases, we have the ability, we being the Department of Defense, has the ability to make the right decisions, uh, and we just don't. Uh, it, it's kind of institutional stagnation that's led to uh, a process of making decisions that doesn't actually set us up for success. Um, one of the key kind of aspects here is we need access to talent. We need access to the people that are the best in the world at building the, the specific things that we need for the future, whether that's um, you know, autonomous systems or applied artificial intelligence or new applications of things like computer vision or deep learning. Um, and the reality is, is that the vast majority of the, the best talent in the world on these topics are working at places like Google and Facebook optimizing ads. They're not working on core strategic programs for the United States government. And that obviously to all of your listeners, I'm sure, wouldn't, won't be a surprise at all, was not, was not a problem in the past. You know, we had the best people in the world working on, you know, whether it was stealth technologies, uh, low observability, um, working on you know, nuclear technologies, working on intercontinental ballistic missiles, developing the internet at DARPA, GPS satellites, um, all these, you know, exquisite military technologies that ended up transitioning out into the, the commercial sector and changing the way that consumers interact with their day-to-day -day life. But today it's kind of backwards. There's more computer vision in, you know, your Snapchat app on your phone than there is anywhere in the Department of Defense. There's more um, autonomy in the vacuum cleaner robot that you know cleans your house than there is in any military system. And this is a problem. And it's something that there's just not enough awareness uh, inside the department about how to get access to the people that are that are really good at building those systems. And so I think I think that's kind of the core problem that we're grappling with is how do we turn this incentive structure around so we recruit, retain, attract from a contracting perspective the right people that have the ability to solve these problems. Uh, first of all, I have to commend the uh, the uh, piece uh, to our audience because anything that's got you know that you're referring to Johnny von Neumann, uh, Alan Turing, um, you know Kelly Johnson, and you even quote Robert Moses, right, the, the great road builder uh, from my hometown, New York City. Um, so what are but you got right? I mean, the biggest challenge that you face is you do have the big contractors, right, that are innovative in their own right, but they have a lot. They have, 
resources as well as enormous political capital. They have a lot of installed bases that they can play on, whether it's a Lockheed Martin, a Boeing, a Northrop Grumman, or a Raytheon, right? I mean, they have titanic national footprints. That in turn helps shape policy outcomes. I think we can agree. Um, so how, and, and there are a number of evangelists, Trey, right? I mean, it's, it's not just you and Chris and Palmer. Uh, you know, we've got uh, Joe Felter at Stanford and Steve, uh, Steve uh, Blank, right? A lot of very thoughtful people who've been making the passion case for change. Um, that did get reflected in the Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter, embracing that uh, vision and saying we have to change it. But, but ultimately, right, you're living this now in creating the new franchise, is it changing? And if it's not changing, then what are some of the specific things we need to consider in order for us to change? Because competition is good. And as you noted, our, the device that sits in our pocket or the machine that vacuums our houses have far more sophistication than what it is that's in the hands of our troops against adversaries or at least one particular very large adversary that's trying to harness these technological changes and really push them down to far lower levels. Yeah, I, I mean, to answer your question backwards, the the really challenging part of this is that our adversaries, uh, like China, like Russia, um, they actually have figured out how to do this in the reverse. So, you know, in the in the during the Cold War in the United States, we obviously were like a government first research and development infrastructure that then would turn over and um, and make those technologies available to the commercial sector. Um, obviously, this doesn't work anymore. And in China, they figured this out, for example. Um, you know, there's a, there are multiple national labs that exist on the government side in China that have hundreds of AI engineers. But really, what they're leveraging is the thousands and thousands of AI engineers that work in places like SenseTime, that they are then leveraging the technology developments there and bringing them back into the government sector for civil military fusion. And they recognize that getting that leverage is not very likely going to be coming out of the government labs for the, at the largest scale. It's going to be coming out of their private sector. And so they've forced uh, engagement there um, in, in a legal sense. And that's obviously not something that we're going to do in the United States. I would never advocate that the U.S. government should pursue some sort of civil military strategy. One of the strengths of our democracy is that if you don't want to work on defense, you don't have to. And I think that's great. Um, I have no qualms with Google withdrawing from Project Maven. I think it would be great if our large technology companies were open to working with the military, but I also don't see it as you know, a critical part of our democracy to force people to do that. Um, so, so I think that's like one interesting place there. Um, you know, oftentimes the, the critique that I hear of this, uh, of this concept inside the department is not one around the theory. I think people would agree that you want access to the top talent. Obviously, Ash Carter built a lot of his, you know, his core talking points of, of his time as SECTA um, was about, you know, uh, reaching back out to the, to the sector. He obviously stood up the Defense Innovation Unit. He stood up the Defense Innovation Board. He had the third offset initiative. He like, you know, had Will Roper in charge of SCO. He had, um, you know, all of uh, the Defense Digital Service, which was an outcropping of USDS. Like he, he fully understood this. Now, I think where we where things got a little problematic and have been lost in translation since then is that there seems to be this kind of belief that there are exceptions to everything. And so whenever you, uh, you offer a very specific critique and you say this program isn't working or this contract isn't, isn't structured correctly to incentivize the right people to work on it, um, you get all of this hand-wringing from the DC political class 
where they've convinced themselves that yes, this might be true in general, but no, not for my specific thing. And there's a here, I'm going to give you a hundred different reasons why this is a highly nuanced thing that only Lockheed Martin can build or something like that, or only Booz Allen can work on. And this is highly unproductive. Um, and, and it's where you get into this trickiness where maybe it's not a specific policy change that's required. It's just honesty. Like people need to be calling out bad behavior. And if you find yourself wringing your hands, trying to come up with highly nuanced reasons to say that the thing that you're doing is not, you know, part of this, uh, a necessary part of this cultural shift, you're probably doing something wrong. So how do we do it better? What are the specific things we need to do? Because I agree with you, right? Competition is, uh, improves the breed. Uh, we have better phones because Samsung, uh, Samsung, Google, uh, and Apple are duking it out constantly. So that's why we're getting better cameras, better low light capabilities, you name it, better connectivity. Five, and almost everything in our commercial lives tray is driven by that battle of competition. And yet we find it hard to inject into the military where once we did have that spirit, of competition um, and, and bounded programs, right? We're still not flying F-104 jets uh, any more than we're flying F-100s, right? They had their moment, they did what they did. Whereas now we've gotten into this thing of any program we build has got to survive for you know, seven decades. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Nobody who worked on the B-52 would have told you it's gonna be in service for nearly a century, right? Um, I mean, how is it that we need to approach this colored by your experience in commercial industry Right. I mean, you started writing uh, very sophisticated uh, algorithms and software for the intelligence community on language. Uh, you went to Palantir. You're at the Founders Fund. You're now at Andrel, right? So what are the things we need to do differently to actually change? Yeah, one of, one of my favorite quotes of all time was from Norm Augustine, the former Lockheed CEO, where he said something to the effect of like in the year 2050, the entire defense budget will purchase just one aircraft. (laughs) And obviously it was a joke, but I don't think it was a joke by much. I think he like definitely understood the way things were heading. Um, Yeah. There's so many different ways that you could, you could look at potential solutions to the problem. Um, You know, there's a a, a language going through Congress right now um, about like a warfighter innovation fund, uh, a way to take, um, a set aside budget and apply it uh, to transitioning programs that are working. Um, not things that have like, you know, you're not dictating the pathway or naming the specific technologies. It's just kind of looking at this and saying, what are the four or five most promising new, t- new technologies coming from new entrants in this year, this, you know, government fiscal year that we can dedicate big slugs of capital to, whether that's like 10 million, 20 million, $30 million in big bites to, to bridge that valley of death um, and get them over into a program that can that we can like you know budget for and sustain for in the out years. Um, I think that is like a really kind of high potential change um, because right now everyone's getting stuck between the piloting and prototyping, which I would argue has never been easier than at any point in American history. Um, there's just gobs, billions and billions of dollars being spent every year on pilots and prototypes, and almost everything is dying um, before it transitions into production. So that's one thing that you could that you could very easily do. Um, other things that we discuss in the the rebooting the arsenal of arsenal of democracy involves new ways of looking at data rights, um, which I think is really important if you're going to engage with the the private sector. You have to figure out some way. Um, to, to have 
uh, a data a data rights regime that doesn't put people in weird intellectual property places. And we've written a lot about that as a company as well. Um, so, th I mean, there's a bunch of these different reforms. You could slap them all together and try to come up with a slightly better system that works. Um, but at the end of the day, the core thing is going to be how do we drive people into making the right types of decisions that incentivize the right type of right types of companies to work with the department. And I think a lot of that is just people like actually, you know, committing to doing the right thing and having an understanding of where we've fallen short in the past. Um, uh, it, it would, um, you know, I, I want to ask you where it is you think um, where we should be investing a more but one of the things that I've always been curious about is that the United States actually used to be, uh, in the Pentagon, used to be actually pretty thoughtful sometimes of finding a good idea and saying, well, that company might not be able to execute it at scale, but this is a really good idea. We've got to give it to somebody else in order to produce it. I mean, the Jeep, for example, jumps to mind. It was American Bantam, the British arm of uh, uh, the, uh, the American arm and the British company that developed the scout car that Americans saw and said, oh, my God, you know, the British Army's got this. We need to have a similar capability. They brought it to the United States and the army looked at it and said, listen, this is a terrific idea, but this tiny little company can't build this at scale for us. And so they brought Willys and Ford and everybody else in to do it. Trey, do we need to have kind of a model where, wait a minute, Andrew's got the brilliant idea. But in order to, whether it's for institutional resistance or any other, or buy-in reasons or something else, we've got to, I mean, I'm not saying have a shotgun marriage here, but, you know, some sort of, hey, these guys have the brilliant idea, but in order to be able to put this into production at scale, buy off opposition, let's, let's have maybe one of the bigs help execute that. I mean, is that, is that an approach or is that a road, kind of a fraught road in its own Right. I'm just curious, you know, whether yeah. or not there is a creative workaround. Yeah. There, I mean, there are all sorts of challenges that are going to be present in any of these ideas, but I think this one could, could really be leveraged in a positive way. I mean, if you think about this as, you know, there, there's a history of building hardware defined and software enabled systems uh, where, you know, the, the bigs would come in, they deliver a, a truly incredibly complex ship or plane or, you know, uh, ground vehicle. And of course there would be software that existed on that system, but it wouldn't be the core deliverable of the system. Um, whereas today, a lot of the, these things that matter for the future of warfare are software defined and hardware enabled. So it's a flip of that. And, and yet right. all of these contracts where these really core software uh, problems exist are still primed and managed as if they're entirely exquisite hardware programs. And so, you know, you could start looking at this as an opportunity to award prime contracts to software companies. So you could either have, you know, companies like Android that are, you know, software at the core, companies like Palantir, um, and then have the hardware companies, the primes subbing there. Um, or you could build a like separate structure where you have the hardware and the software for a system uh, primed out separately. Um, so you have an opportunity to like recognize the importance of the contribution on the software side to actually accomplishing the mission that you set out to accomplish. So there are probably a couple cuts there. Um, I think I think the traditional structure of having, you know, the bigs own the entire system and then try to sub out the work on the on the software side that is really core to the system, that doesn't have a great track record of success. And there's a bunch of reasons for this. You know, we could talk about the incentives of cost plus contracting. We could talk about 
you know, how subs are traditional treated, uh, traditionally treated on these contracts. We can talk about margins and how that plays in in a really big way uh, with the Department of Defense. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that's probably the least likely approach to work. The more likely approach to work is by elevating that software expertise um, to, to the, a level with the hardware systems that has not traditionally been done. Um, as you uh, note in your in your piece, the the essence of technology is doing more with less, right? Um, ultimately, is is the system for all for all of the focus that we've seen over the past decade, uh, and I have to say over the past three decades, right? I mean, the message of of better, faster, cheaper has been going on throughout my thirty year career uh, doing this. Um, are we moving anything, you know, and, and every day we heard from Long Aquilino last week, we've heard from CQ Brown, we've heard from Secretary Kendall, we've heard from Secretary Austin, we need to move faster, we need to develop capabilities, we need to field them at scale more quickly. Um, are, is there anything that you're seeing in your decades in this business that suggests that we're doing any of this better, faster, smarter? There, are, I mean, of course, there are small wins. Um, you know, as you pointed out at the beginning of the conversation, Palantir, SpaceX, both kind of like over the, the pre prior 20 years um, had established a record of success that um, new entrants to the market today are able to stand on the shoulders of. And um, I think that certainly makes it easier. I think there's a better recognition of the importance of commercial preference and contracting. Um, so, so I would say, yes, there's definitely, um, there's some momentum in that direction. I will say that there, there tends to be the most kind of momentum in this entire technology space has been towards uh, what I would call innovation theater. It's, uh, you know, SBIRs, um, prototype right. contracts, uh, work, work, like R&D work programs and things like that. And the department seems to just continue doubling down on this, like continue increasing the budget, continue increasing the number of contact tracks that are given. And it's a great talking point. They can go out in the public and say like, oh, look at just how many SBIR contracts we're writing. It's like, whoa, guys, this is not at all. Uh, this is not at all the direction that actually is going to make a difference. Um, you know, I, as you mentioned as well, I'm a partner at a venture capital firm. And one of the core lessons you learn in venture is that there's a power law distribution in returns. And the, you know, handful of really big returns in your, in your fund makes up for all of the failures of which there are a lot you know, when you're investing in technology companies. And so what really matters is making sure that you're in that small number of really big winners. And it's, it's oftentimes seems like what the DOD wants to do is they want to let all flowers bloom. They don't want to pick winners. They just want to give really small contracts to hundreds or thousands of companies. Um, and then they'll concentrate the big contracts into the big primes. Um, and this strategy is not a working strategy. I, I think anyone in the, in the private sector would immediately recognize that the only way that you're going to recruit and retain top talent, you're going to keep people engaged, that you're going to be able to build the capacity to execute these really large programs is by picking winners and committing to the companies that have the best performance um, and in like kind of building them as centers of excellence for doing this work right. with the government. And there's, a, on that category, I don't think there's any more willingness or interest today than there was, you know, when I was at Palantir 10 years ago. 
you know, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, the, the, one of the dumbest lines that people repeat over and over and over again is the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers. And the government historically has picked winners and losers and helped drive innovation as a consequence, whether it was ARPANET or, or any other system or technology, right? I mean, we, we got actually remarkably good at assessing what winners were and what losers were and how to invest in them, whether it was through InQtel or any one of, you know, through DARPA or, or, or just directly through major uh, defense contracts. Um, it's a, it's yeah, a I would say, I would say by the way, that this is, I would say, by the way, that this is like, it is one of these core areas where there's just a total denial of, of reality. Um, I, like you said, there are so many times that people say like, we don't want to be in the business of picking winners. And then when you say you have to pick winners, they immediately react in some like morally offended way and say, no, like what I mean by saying picking winners is that I, I want there to be, be free and fair competitions and we don't want to like lean into some corrupt version of contracting. And <laughs> like, I'm in this position where I'm constantly reminding people like, no one is asking you, no one is asking you Correct. to make a, a morally you know, corrupt decision <laughs> about picking winners. We're just asking you to actually have merit-based competitions for new systems. And when you dis- when a company outperforms another company, award them the contract. And then if in two years, like it doesn't have to be a 10-year contract. If in two years you recompete it and that same company loses, that's great. Move on. I think every like technology, technology new entry to the market would welcome more frequent, fair, competitions that end with a winner. Um, but most, most of our engagement either has no opportunity for new competitors to come in and compete and win against the bigs uh, because these are like multi-decade contracts that, you know, the sunk cost fallacy is like very real um, or they're, you know, ostensibly free and fair competitions. But at the end, the government awards the contract to five, six, 10 different companies and no one actually gets a meaningful chunk of the size of that contract. And so at the end of the day, nobody wins. That's also not a great solution. Uh, Well, I mean, um, right. We used to be in a position where if somebody came up with a better mousetrap, we wouldn't necessarily go, wow, Trey, what a brilliant idea. Now that we've taken your great idea and your technical data, we're now going to conduct a competition where people who have no idea how to execute what it is you're trying to do, um, are, are now going to have a chance of doing it. And then you realize like, wow, I came up with this idea and I actually lost it to somebody who might not be able to execute it because they had a better song. I mean, if this, this happens time and again over my career, as opposed to saying, wait a minute, this is a brilliant idea. These guys have beat on it. Let's go ahead and let's act, actualize this quickly. Um, right. Most of these me, contracts are proposal focused competition, not performance focused competition. We need to shift that to get it driven by performance-focused competition instead. I, I have for decades pointed out to people that you know World War II took three years and nine months, and during that, we developed an atom bomb. Just yep. saying. Yeah. Uh, yeah just, totally. just saying. We, we can do big things quickly, um, you know, and consuming 10% of the nation's power at Oak Ridge, okay? Um, yep. uh, let me, the time is uh, running short, and I would love to have a one-hour version of this com- conversation, but let me just ask you two, uh, two uh, questions. What are the lessons that you guys and Andrew have drawn from what is successful, right? As you guys are mapping your growth strategy, right? I mean, you're in this to help change the business, but also make money uh, doing it. Uh, and so far have been uh, having a little bit of success at it. 
what what have you learned from whether it's it's SpaceX, whether it's Palantir, whether it's those who didn't succeed that's shaping your strategy about how to succeed doing this? So that you know, right, I mean, history is full of really great companies that people remember in business cases as opposed to still ongoing concerns. There, there are a bunch of these lessons. I think one of the core lessons that kind of gets at some of the points from earlier in the conversation is that transitioning into production is the entire game. Um, you, could, your co- you could build a company that lasts for generations uh, just getting trapped inside of the SBIR mill and just continuing to get small contracts, having low headcount growth, but you can turn those into lifestyle businesses for the founders where you're just like churning through, you know, these little grants that the government is offering. But if you want to scale and you want to compete on core programs, you really have to focus on transitioning to production as quickly as possible. You don't have five years to pull this off. Um, You know, a venture capital cycle is like 18 months of runway. So you need to execute inside of individual venture capital cycles. So for us, from the very beginning, our focus was on, you know, what is it that we can build that's going to have the kind of core brains of the software that we want to deliver, this computer vision uh, autonomy system um, that we believe we can get deployed into an active use case inside of 18 months. And so our first, that's what led to the first choice that we had to uh, build the Sentry Tower, which is you know, an autonomous surveillance capability uh, that is static. It, it, it's mobile, but it sits in a single place as it's surveying the, the environment. And um, I think having that initial focus on something that we could get out the door really quickly was kind of pivotal to demonstrating uh, the, the business model that we thought could work with the department. We also realized that what, what, selling software oh no, is go incredibly ahead. hard. We also realized that selling software is incredibly difficult. Uh, there's like almost like a moral aversion to play, paying software margins uh, in, inside of the DoD. And so our focus was on um, putting the thing that we knew the customer really need, needed, which was the software system, the mission autonomy capability, um, and wrapping it in metal um, because it's significantly easier for the customer to buy bent metal than it is to buy software. And so if you use right. that as kind of a Trojan horse to get the software in the door, um, it's it significantly simplifies the, the sales process. I find somebody like you being forced to say that is, you know, really, you just need to find a hammer and hit yourself in the head with it. And if that's not just a wake up <laughs> call, I, don't, I really don't know what is. And I'm just trying to be as candid about that as I can be. Um, we, we've got about a, two minutes left um, and just two questions. What is, Trey, the key to speed? Um, and then my follow-up question is, where do we need to invest more? Where do we need to invest less, especially as you look at the lessons that are being derived from Ukraine that are as applicable to a conflict with Russia as they are applicable to a conflict with China? The number one thing in my mind is allowing the companies in the private and in, in private industry to bring you a vision for how to address a critical problem of the department rather than offering a really highly specced out requirement. Uh, that they would then need to go and build from scratch. So if you look at any of the like commercial innovations that have changed the world in the last 20 years, things like the iPhone, things like, um, you, you know, the Tesla automobile, these weren't things that resulted from a requirements process. They resulted from the right. brains of entrepreneurs that came forward and said, based on this technology that exists today, 
thing like the the physics that's been solved today, the hardware that's been solved today, things that are available, uh, you know, at at scale from existing manufacturing of, uh, in other sectors, we can take all those things and turn them into a really clever product that addresses a core problem that you're having. But believing that the department or the U.S. federal government as a whole are the ones that are coming up with these ideas, these visionary concepts, is just, it's fundamentally wrong. Like you need to be open to and have the ability to buy um, things that you couldn't have even dreamed of existing, um, but someone clever enough to leverage modern technology had the ability and uh, uh, wherewithal to do. And, and I think that's oftentimes just missed. We spend too much time talking about like what, what the department's vision for the future is. You know, that matters less than what exists and what people have been able to build um, to solve your problems. And, and, and let me ask you, Ryan, I mean, you, you talked about what the commercial state of the art is. I know you guys tend to play uh, cards uh, close to your vest, but you guys are not are showing that you're not just right at an interesting Silicon Valley story that's empty. You guys are starting to win uh, meaningful uh, contracts. As you look at the technological future and what the department needs, right, where is it, you know, and, and drawing lessons from Ukraine, uh, for example, right? Where, where is it, Trey, you think we should be investing more and maybe where we should be in le- investing less ultimately? Uh, because even if we're having, we're spending more money, the costs on the department are going up, right? It'll be about $37 billion more. Originally, there was much euphoria that it would be $100 billion dollars. Uh, right? We're, we're going to have to make choices. There are places we're going to have to spend money. There are places we're going to have to spend less money. From your standpoint, where is it we need to invest more? Where is it we might be able to invest less? And how do we need to, and where do we need to just invest very differently? Yeah, Vago, as you mentioned, the, you know, the definition of technology is doing more with less. Uh, oftentimes, we get stuck in this false dichotomy about talk, talking about like why we need the defense budgets to be bigger so we can do more uh, and then you have people on the other side that are saying we need to cut the budget and do fewer things, have fewer ships, have fewer planes, whatever. And I think like if you actually like really take the lessons from the history of technology and apply them, I think we could have a defense budget that's hundreds of billions of dollars less per year that delivers much better outcomes. And a lot of that leans into leveraging software. Um, rather than hardware for all of these big, expensive, exquisite systems. Um, There's a world in which you leverage that software and cheap off-the-shelf hardware uh, to build fleets of low-cost, attritable systems um, that can have tremendous military impact, um, you know, both in times of peace and in times of war, and uh, that create a deterrent impact beyond even what we have today. Um, that's almost like an untenable thing to even say. It's like heresy to talk about, um, you know, reducing the defense budget and getting better outcomes. But I think these are the types of at least thought exercises that we need to be engaged in to see if we can come up with new paradigms uh, that enable us to accomplish our mission. And really, I think in almost every case, that starts with leveraging the best talent we can find in software rather than continuing to invest in really big, exquisite systems that cost us trillions of dollars. Trey, thank you uh, so much for being able uh, to join us today. Absolutely fascinating conversation. I, w- I look forward to ha- welcoming you back on because there are so many other things we'd love to get your take on. Uh, thanks so very much. All the very best uh, to you uh, and yours and uh, look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Much appreciated. Thank you.
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.